So we are going to continue on, and for, I think most of us have been in here, but uh, we are, we started the Book of Romans a while ago, um, and we're now revisiting uh, an introduction to that book. So we've been through the author, the conversion of Saul to Paul, the the city itself, and just all of the the beauty and the reality of Rome at that time, uh, the church, and now we're into a discussion really from a selection of scriptures around the intention that, that could very well be Paul's primary intention of this book of Romans. And there's a strong argument from, from a number of commentaries, uh, a couple of them in particular that we'll hear from this morning. So that's kind of where we are with this for all of us, uh, but certainly our uh, those that may be just joining us. I thought I would start with, uh, so for a variety of different personal and just um, uh, reasons, uh, you know, I, if any of you have not read and just absorbed and then treasured up Jerry Bridges and anything Jerry Bridges has written, um, it's a wonderful resource, particularly uh, as you are enduring uh, the various trials of life. I was telling Grady this morning that you could pick one of the many trials that this man has been through, and it would be more than I could ever imagine going through, just one of them. Um, and yet his love for the Lord is just wondrous. So if you, if you, and I know, I mean, I know we're all going through various forms of trials in our life. Some of them are absolutely, you've got to lay them at the feet of the Lord. That's where they all need to be. Um, but I, you know, my wife has often, and I know all of us have, have heard it and said it, but we all know that uh, either we're in a storm we're coming out of a storm, or we're headed into a storm. And boy, sometimes that just really sneaks up on you. Sudden storms are just a part of life, says this writer. And Christians, above all, are not exempt from that. As Job 14.1 says, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble, right? I'd like to read a little bit from, from Jerry Bridges, and I thought it was very apropos for this discussion that we've been in the last couple mornings, because what you really begin to see in Paul's writing throughout this book and arguably the as we said last week Romans 9 10 and 11 is described by many many wonderful commentaries as kind of this thing that sits out there where Paul just goes through this wonderful theological study at, all the way through Romans 8 and then it's like boom he comes in with this Israel thing and and I and I have certainly over my studies of this book over time and of this study began to see it very differently, particularly those chapters, because I think those chapters are really the climax of Paul's, 
primary message, which is that we have a wonderfully sovereign God. And he has purposed the end from the beginning, and for every one of us, the details in between. <laughs> and I, I think that's what Paul is, is really teaching, and he's using Israel as the primary example of the wonders of the faithfulness of a sovereign God. And I think we'll see that uh, as we wrap up this section, I think, I think today. But let me read this from Jerry Bridges' book, In Trusting God. As he was discussing the sovereignty of God in nations, in armies, in wars, in, in the trials of nations, much like what we have going on both in this country, around this country, and, and all around this globe, right? He says, the second observation we can make is that God sometimes causes government leaders or officials to make foolish decisions in order to bring judgment upon a nation. Now think about that. Wonderful writer. I've begun to enjoy. He has a wonderful book called The Providence of God, circa 1800. I love the way they, these guys write. I, I love when you read them and you have to go look up six words because you have no idea what they mean. <laughs> I'm going to throw a couple of them at you. But Alexander Carson, as he was lamenting the drift of the church out of biblical scriptural foundations into the wisdom of man, and which then requires you to set God off as the great winder of the clock, but now he's just off there doing his God thing, and we're just down here doing our thing. That was the drift uh, that was very prominent at this particular point that, that spurned him to write his book. Alexander Carson said, Why does folly often prevail over wisdom? in the councils of princes and the houses of legislators. Amen. <laughs> right. He says, God has appointed the rejection of good counsel. That doesn't mean the counsel didn't come and it wasn't given. It meant it was not received. Right? So... That's a good lesson for us. In order to bring on nations that vengeance that their crimes call down from heaven. Now, of course, he's talking about his day. Jerry is talking about his day. Paul is talking about his day. And he's talking about his beloved Israel. And he knows Rome is going to come down on them. And he doesn't know exactly when, but he senses that it's imminent. He was, it made me think this, when you read Paul, what is one of the things you notice about Paul? In the end, it's imminent, it's urgent, it's like, I don't, it's like now, right? You get that strong sense, that is flowing right through this, and he knows part of that involves that destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus foretold not one stone will remain 
And this is Paul's, this is personal, right? So that was a detour. Let me go back to Mr. Carson in the 1800s. God rules the world. I'm sorry. God has appointed the rejection of good counsel in order to bring on nations that vengeance, bring on nations that vengeance that their crimes call down from heaven. God rules the world by providence, not by miracle. Really good, right? By providence. And boy, you talk about a deep pool to go swim around in. Just go swim around in God's providence, right? This, would, this man's book would be a good place to start because it's unfathomable the way God orchestrates all of the absolute evil and wicked and good and desirable into his perfect unfolding work of redemption. And that was what Mr. Carson just could not get over. See that grave senator? He rises and pours forth wisdom. But if God has determined to punish the nation, and here comes some, some prating, right, speculist, will impose his sophisms, fallacious argument intended to deceive deliberately. That's sophism, right? Some of you may not have to look that up, but I did. On the most, now this was sagacious assembly, or shrewd. What's he saying? You, you can speak wisdom into the most shrewd, wise, discerning group of people. And if God has determined that he's going to judge that people or that nation, they will choose otherwise. They will choose the wrong choice. It's a picture, isn't it? Right? And quite frankly, it's, it's one of those points where a number of people who, who maybe haven't pondered the sovereignty of God in all things will say, that's not the God I worship. He's just that God of love, right? And we completely remove him from the office in which he will judge humanity. And as we shared with our dear Gloria yesterday, in a very real sense, there is one sin of all the sins we commit that ultimately condemns us to hell. Think about that. Because every other sin can be forgiven except for the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And it's the Romans 132. It's the hearty approval that nations give, that crowds give to, to what is dead wrong, but has become part of the wrath of God. And Paul, to bring this back to Paul, Paul knows that his beloved Israel is under the wrath of God. And this is what begins to unpack throughout this book, right? So let me pray for us with that as an introduction. Father, we do come before you in the midst of all that we have on our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our circumstances, in our families. Many of them fearful things, Lord, unsettling 
many of them, every one of them are an opportunity for the church, for the bride to be that beautiful bride that she has been called to be. And Lord, I pray that every one of us that are graciously saved into this church will do so and desire to do so. Lord, that we would honor you with this time, with this study, with our minds. We pray that you would open them to the truths of the scriptures, the discernment that we need as we walk in days that you have defined as evil and declared. And you, our sovereign God, we can rest and trust that you know that they are evil. And yet we must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Lord, I pray that this would be our great desire, not to our glory, but to yours and to yours alone. We pray these things in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to just try to connect to last week's study a little bit. Um, Paul's teaching to a Gentile church, one that has a reputation that is going out everywhere from Rome, right? A church that is sitting right in the midst of all of the rumblings of what's going on in the Roman Empire. And, and if you've studied the history of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire at this point is on a downgrade, and it is sliding quickly and it is a financial problem. It is a, a warrior challenge. They don't have armies anymore that they used to have. They can't keep what they have consumed as an empire. And it is on a serious downgrade. And then there's these Jewish people, these Israelites that just keep wreaking havoc with their guerrilla warfare. Remember the zealots, right? They're just wreaking havoc. And, and the intensity towards Israel is been building for quite some time and from the point of writing this book till 70 AD is roughly 10 11 years but it's already beginning to build and Rome is already weakening and they're already losing control right and yet God has lifted up this beautiful little church that is we say a Gentile church but I think when you get to the backside of Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you read the rest of that as I did yesterday again, you clearly see this is a, a church that is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, mature and weak, and that is part of the instructions that we'll see, which gives us a real sense of what is the composition of this Gentile church, right? But the big question is, is part of the reason Paul wrote this beautiful epistle to Rome as he is headed to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is very much on his mind. It always is, but particularly now, right? Because he's taken the gift, Because which means what? <laughs> the Christians in Jerusalem are under what? Siege by Israel for starters. Right. It's just so important to get the context from which the writer writes because it will reveal the heart of the writer who is in every way writing out of every bit of his soul and yet in every perfect way 
penning the very words of God precisely for us. Isn't that wondrous? I, I can't get over that. But the question that Paul seems to be screaming through this letter is, or really the statement, don't forget about Israel. Please don't forget about evangelizing Israel. And I'm going to walk you through what is arguable, if you've studied it, one of the most incredible unpacking of pure theology you'll ever get in this book. Why would he do that? Why would he spend so much time on the law and the flesh? Because these are the things that Israel, the typical Jewish person, believes saves them. Just like every other religious pagan. It's always a works-based religion. But he's teaching them how to unpack that lie through their evangelistic efforts at which they are now gaining reputation all across the world. But he's emphasizing the Jew first and the Gentile. Remember we talked about that last week. The Jew first and the Gentile. We'll see some of that unpacked this week. So just very key to think about um, as, you, as you unpack this book. And of course we'll be able to draw this out as we work our way across the book. It also struck me when you think about the urgency and the intensity and the eminence of the destruction of the beloved is uh, Jerusalem, why Peter and Paul called on the people so fervently to pray for the leaders of these nations. Why? It, it wasn't like it is for us. I pray for our leaders and I kind of like struggle right? I pray for righteousness. I pray for a desire to honor God and to have leaders that have a desire to do that. Because I so easily dip into what I don't want anymore, right? These guys are praying that the leaders would have a heart to let the Christian community live a peaceful, quiet life. Why? Because the governments are going after those people with the sword. Nero said, kill them. Right? Ask them if they say they're a Christian, kill them and their family, and we will exalt you. I think those prayers were very fervent because it was life and death to declare yourself in public a believer in Jesus Christ. So this is all part of what is stirred up and Rome is the sword Rome and the leaders of Israel <laughs> the two worlds of Paul right they're the sword against his beloved church and his beloved Israel right and we wonder no wonder Paul was such a mess right no wonder he was so fervent willing to be beaten right So I want to connect, we, we, we kind of connected to Romans 8, 12 through 17 last week, and I want to just read that for us, Romans 8, 12 through 17, because there are a number of things that as Paul was pinning this section, and you guys, 
anybody who wants coffee, I, please get up and just be comfortable about getting coffee and tea while we're in the midst of our study. This is kind of the, the family room study, right? Um, but when I read this passage, and if you really search with a concordance, everything that pops out of this little section of Scripture, it's going to throw you right back to the Old Testament. It's going to throw you right back to Israel. And it's going to throw you right back, particularly to Jeremiah, that we looked at 31 last week, and a number of Isaiah passages, where this language flows right up out of it. And they're all about his beloved Israel. Right? But that, that's not... So Paul says to this Gentile but mixed church in Rome, in Romans 8, 12, So then, brothers, so he's talking to the church, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You see the proper way to evangelize someone who is in a false religion of works? There it is right there. This is a theme that flows all the way through this book in beautiful, beautiful ways. And by the way, Sorry, I'm, I'm probably going to blow the schedule. But uh, most of you know my family is deeply steeped in Roman Catholicism. I can't share a five-minute version of the gospel with someone steeped. Where there, every line of our family is Roman Catholic. My mother and father died as staunch Roman Catholics. How do I tell my brothers and sisters the truth of a gospel snippet when the very eternal state in their mind of our parents rests on how they interpret it? And my point is, I would treasure an opportunity to walk my family or any of them through the book of Romans, the entire book of Romans if the Lord were to allow that. If this is not a five-minute toss the gospel and call them to something discussion. This is a, and that's Paul's point, this is a deep, in-the-soul theology that needs to be taught, understood and taught, right? So he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he, obviously there's some folks struggling with the idea of sanctification in this church. Any of us struggling with sanctification? <laughs> right? For all who led by the Spirit of God, and here comes the language that comes right out of Isaiah and Jeremiah, are sons of God. And the Jews had to be going, wait a minute, you're talking to all of us. That was for us, particularly the immature Jews. That's a promise to us. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, here comes another one, of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, and here comes one of the most tender, Israel, I am a father to you. Right? Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there's another one. Wait a minute. Israel were the children of God. They were the adopted. They were the elect. 
God is their father. What's happening? Right? And in, in, it, surely in a very real way, these thoughts are popping out of Paul's mind as he's being moved along by the Holy Spirit to write this because he goes right into this long treatment of Israel. What about Israel? Right? And what you see here, and this is really the error, I believe, that so many make with Romans 9, 10, 11. Where'd that come? It's treated as or, not and. Right? It is, it is, the oracles were given to Israel. They rejected Christ. The, the oracles then flowed into the New Testament to the New Testament church, the New Covenant church, the church, of which was filled with Gentiles and Jews, as we'll see in this study. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 will reveal the future role and the very prominent role of Israel in this overall work of redemption. And that's what Paul is really bringing out with these three chapters. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So that that was a passage that, that in Romans 8 that really, I think, was part of the launch into the, the subsequent text. Because Paul takes that and he flows right into Romans 8, 27 and 30, which we all know as the golden chain of redemption. And we often think about that from the church perspective. But what I encourage you to do is think about this passage from the complete work of redemption of God. Because this is Paul's real point, right? Romans 8, 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the, here it is, the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Treasured passage, right? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, including Israel. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You ever thought about that? When Christ was born 2,000 years ago in his incarnate state, he became the first brother of every single believer. It was retroed back to the very first and all the way through. So this is a passage that is all-consuming of the sovereignty of God and his redemptive work from the garden all the way to the very end. in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that line that went right through the Jewish nation, and those whom he predestined, he also called. He's doing the work of calling each one out, the remnant of Israel, the, the church. And those whom he called, he also, these become words that we'll study next week and beyond, also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's just opening up the audience's mind. 
He's opening up this church in Rome from, from here and where we are as a church to the grand redemptive work of God and how he's been working this work of election all the way through, right? Now, I want to take a look at Romans 15, 4, 6. If you'll go there with me. And I want you to first realize, and if you have the opportunity, go back and read, you know, really Romans 14 will help you. Because what you see in Romans 14, this Gentile church, is precisely Paul teaching them how to have communion with one another and fellowship with one another when you have very strong and matured Gentile and Jewish believers who are mixed with brand new baby Jewish and pagan believers. And what you see is Paul goes through Issues with diet, with both the pagans who came out of their idolatrous rituals and the Jews who came out of their ceremonial system. Diet, days of worship, right? Clothing, all the issues that a new believer would bring into the church. And Paul's teaching them how to disciple as they mature up from being baby Christians. Right? And, and what strikes me about that is sometimes what we might expect from a brand new Christian. <laughs> like it was some magical zap that just, remember we talked about how the old man comes right into our new life? The old man comes right into our new life. Much of our old religion comes right into our new life. Our ways of thinking come right into it. And what Paul is doing in Romans 14 is teaching the matured believers from both Jewish and pagan background to come alongside of these not-so-mature believers and disciple them all the way through that. Not to, well, don't do that. Because <laughs> in most cases, he says, let them be. Let them mature out of that with the work of the Holy Spirit. We are not the Holy Spirit. And I, I just I think that's a beautiful picture of what we need to be as a church. Stop trying to be the Holy Spirit, for starters, and be faithful teachers and disciples of the Word of God and of people's lives. And then a, a brand new baby believer has a new life, a new soul brought to life because he has Christ. That's where you start, right? That's what Paul did with this book. He unpacked it from beginning to end, didn't he? All of that. So he's taught them how to do the very thing he exhorts them to do in 14. And then he says this in Romans 15, 4 through 6. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Now there's a passage to ponder right? Everything that took place in former days is for our instruction. 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And there it is. That's his climax of this. He's heading off the potential issues of having this composite church of believers, Jews and Gentile, mature and weak, and saying, love one another, live in harmony, teach one another, disciple one another, right? And they're in the midst of the most horrific persecution you can imagine. In accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is, it is with that whole section of Romans 8 that we just talked through that he launches into Romans 9, 1 through 3. And remember, we're asking the question, what about Israel? And Paul begins to pour out his heart about Israel. And to many, it feels like a complete jerk of the wheel or maybe a jump to a whole nother road, right? Paul says in Romans 9, 1 through 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I don't think you can get any more emphatic than that, right? <laughs> that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There's the plea. That is the tender Paul saying, please don't forget about our beloved Israel. These are tender words. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul just pours out his love. But then in verse 8, you begin to see how he's now going to unpack some of those terms that were used from the Old Testament in Romans 8, 16, and 17. Look at Romans 9, 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul is saying, not all Israel is Israel. It was God's sovereign choice to use Israel to bring the oracles and to redeem out of Israel a remnant of people, but not the entire nation of people. Because at that point in time, the prevailing belief of the Jew was, I'm a Jew. I'm good. That's what they told Jesus, right? So Paul is just shattering that for understanding. Because at this point, it'd be awful easy to believe that the whole Jewish community, as a nation, means nothing in the plan of God. It's now the church and the composite of the church, right? So Paul invokes this sovereign work of God, choosing who the children of God are. And then Romans 9:11. Though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad, to make this point, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And that is just a statement that says, your grace, your beloved place in Christ had absolutely nothing to do with you. 
because he's already gone through Romans 8, as we will in detail, and declared every one of us a hostile enemy of God's until that work of the Spirit came about. And Paul is just reinforcing this point and forcing these believers in Rome to think about Israel in this same way. And then he puts a big exclamation point at just down, Romans 9.18. And again, we'll go through these in detail in, in the coming months, but Lord willing. So then, Romans 9.18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's whole point up to this point is to help this community of believers understand that the God whom they love is the sovereign God who loved them first. Jew and Gentile. The prevailing message is God saves exactly the same way. He's never changed that. There's new, no new way to come to Christ from the Old Testament and no new way to come from the New Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. God has always saved by the main doctrinal message of this book through justification by faith. He says it over and over, and we'll look at it in a couple of weeks as one of the key doctrines of this runs right through this entire book. So it is the sovereignty of God and justification by faith in Christ alone, right? Which is where these baby believers are that he's exhorting them to disciple. Completely. That's Paul's point. Right. And you'll see some of the language he uses in, in, in Romans 11 to guard this church against the natural tendency to become arrogant. Um, Romans 9, 20 through 25. Now, remember when we talked about the conversion of Saul to Paul? And we just, we thought about how he must have been working through those passages. Coming to realize that the very God who just knocked him off his high horse was the Messiah. That he, in a very real way, participated in the crucifixion of and then the stoning of Stephen. And what did, what was he told that he would be a vessel chosen by God for the Gentile and that he would be showed how much he would suffer for Christ's sake. Those words would just have to launch into your mind those passages from Isaiah and other places and they come right into Paul's mind in this Romans 9.20. Look at this passage in Romans 9.20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God about this sovereign choice that God makes, right? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And that's right out of Isaiah 64, 8, right? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? For what if God, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That is autobiographical for Paul. I mean, that is at the very heart of his soul. Because this is who he was in his ignorance. He was a vessel for wrath that, that in the name of God was doing everything he could to destroy the church of God. Right? You just think about how stirring this had to be for Paul. Verse 22, if, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not, here it comes, from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Remember, this is a Gentile church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His testimony in Acts that his own road to Damascus, God saved him. Jesus saved him. That at one point he was an Israelite and believed, you know, I am of Israel, so therefore I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. Saved. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a logical thought from specific to general. It's like, well, wait a minute, Christ saved me, and and I had no reason to be saved. Then the same must be. Mm -hmm. There's no reason God should choose Israel, right? Uh, other than it's just His way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and, and so uh, it's kind of a neat parallel to Paul mm -hmm. and election for him specifically. Yep. And how he sees election in Israel. And, and that's a wonderful segue because I don't think, it's wonderful, I don't think we'll ever fully appreciate the election of Israel unless we look forward to what God is going to do with Israel. Because it is future, as Paul ends this section of Scripture, that he will say, because all Israel will be saved. And it is the Israel of that day. And even more tenderly, have you ever noticed in Isaiah 53, so we're totally off course right now, but that's just fine. Have you ever noticed in Isaiah 53 the tense in which that chapter is written? Whoever is saying that, if you read it, is speaking in past tense. And Isaiah wrote that, what, 600 years prior? Looking on whom we have pierced, our hearts were pierced. That's what the Israel of the future, when they realize during that tribulation period what they have done. And Paul is constant in his urgency and eminence of this time. It's coming. The day is near, as John said, right? 
So it gives a whole nother dimension because the elect nation was the elect nation. They were used to bring the oracles of God. I mean, look at how God used them, but yet it was always a remnant. And as we'll see next week, that, that there's a purpose to that remnant. And there's a purpose to this Gentile church that we are now a part of. And it is glorious. And I would encourage you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 this week and, and pick it out of there. And maybe a good place to just pause today. We did pretty good. We got through two of three pages, but wonderful discussion because we're not on a calendar. Um, Romans 10, 12 through 15, I believe really reveals Paul's heart. Romans 10, 12 through 15. In light of all this rich theology we've just read, Paul says this again. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you've got to immerse this passage in both the, the Gentile and Jewishness of what Paul's teaching here. It's immersed in both, right? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Most certainly the Jews at this point and your pagans. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That would likely be the, the Gentiles, right? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And it's as if Paul is saying, church in Rome, take this gospel everywhere you can. And don't forget about Israel. They need the gospel just as bad as the rest of the world does. Take it to them, right? Joel 2.32, this is where we can end. I'll read it for you if you don't want to flip to it. Foreshadowing the, the future of Israel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sound familiar? Paul just quoted it. Look what it says. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. What happens in the tribulation period when the world is closing in on Jerusalem? Flee. Flee. There shall be those who escape. 
as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Do you see how incredibly meticulous the Spirit of God is in weaving the truths together throughout the history of the authoring of these scriptures? Because they're pointing right to this moment that we're going to read about next week. And let me just give you a parting thought. Do you know how this church or this nation of Israel comes to believe? Do you know what the catalyst for it is? We're going to look at it next week. They are jealous of the church. Read Romans 11. They are jealous of the church. How can that be? Because the church at that point is under horrific, murderous persecution. Depending on how you call it, church or the tribulation saints. Maybe tribulation saints is a better way to put it. And they are dying for Christ out of a love for Christ that is precisely what a man named Saul saw in a man named Stephen. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. They make Israel jealous. And Israel opens up Isaiah 53 and repent. <laughs> That's just amazing. If your hairs aren't standing up, I don't know why. So we'll pick it back up next week. Thank you, guys. <laughs>